Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hey everyone, it's Kevin Dong here. Thanks for listening to Mac Emerge Podcast again. If you're listening for the first time, make sure to check out the 30 other episodes we have out on Apple Podcasts or on our Mac Emerge CPD website. It's easy. Just search Mac Emerge CPD. It'll be the first link. Or if you're on Apple Podcasts, just search Mac Emerge Podcast. It'll be right there. Before we get to our segment today, I want to let you know about an amazing emergency medicine conference that we are hosting on October 1st, 2021. We are officially reviving our McMaster Emergency Medicine 10 EM conference, and this year it's virtual, meaning everyone and anyone can access it from the comforts of your own home. The EM conference is a one-day action-filled virtual conference filled with amazing and salient core EM topics from amazing award-winning clinician teachers from all the different EM departments across our local region. We have concise and key pearls for topics like pediatric emergency medicine, airway, critical care, ECG, and many, many more pearls. Additionally, if you're interested in an interactive simulation experience, please sign up for the additional pre-conference virtual simulation recess room workshop featuring Dr. James Lung and Dr. Aleem Nagji, who happen to be the OGs of this amazing and innovative teaching experience. If you're interested, please check out our website at 10emconference.org. That's 10emconference.org. And you can check out much, much more at the website for detailed information. That includes conference brochures, registration information, schedule, and much, much more. Lastly, our conference is accredited for both the MOC1 and Main Pro Plus. So check us out on October 1st, 2021. Keep in mind, this conference is not just for physicians. We welcome residents, medical students, paramedics, or EM and critical care nurses, and many others who are interested in emergency medicine and want to get involved in a virtual conference filled with amazing EM topics. Mark your calendars, everyone. Sign up on our website. Keep tuning in on our podcast. I can't wait to see you online at the Mac Emerge 10 EM virtual conference on October 1st, 2021. I really hope to see you all there. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Howard Ovens. He is a doc in Toronto and a professor in the Department of Family Medicine. And he is someone that you probably know from just being a bit of a legend around these parts. Howard has been involved in emergency medicine for longer than he'll probably admit on the record with the podcast, but has been a mover and shaker in so many ways and helping to shape health policy really in all of Ontario because of some of the advocacy and political work that he's done. So Howard, can you say hi to everyone? Hi, everybody. Uh, Wonderful to be here with you. Thank you very much for the invitation, Teresa. Okay, well, thank you so much for making the time for us. The Macabre podcast is an upstart little podcast that is seeking to kind of inspire and connect the physicians who work primarily kind of in our teaching sites. So that's everywhere from Kitchener-Waterloo all the way to Niagara, up to Brampton, and anywhere where our trainees can go. We have been following, hopefully, all these folks. And so we've done some analytics on the back end, and we we do reach uh, everyone from really small hospitals to some of the biggest hospitals in Canada, such as uh, William Osler. And because we do have quite a bit of a footprint and we've been featuring people from different places. And uh, you're obviously a guest, not from very far away and from Toronto, but I'd like to chat with you a little bit about when you've got a big 
group of people and you're trying to put them all together and actually bring them together to do some of the great work that you've done in the past. Do you have any thoughts on how to connect people? Because I think of you as a super connector, you're always someone that knows what's going around and you have a ear to the ground, I think, a lot of the time. So what are some tips when you want to kind of pull a group together? What are some ways that you can, because I think a lot of our physician groups sometimes, we're not even co-located, right? You're, you're kind of like distributed all around and a lot of our leaders out there probably hit their heads against the wall sometimes trying to get people to come together for something. So I'm going to make two main points in discussing this. The first one is the importance of recognizing the value that each individual can bring to an endeavor, whether that endeavor is getting through a shift or even just one case, one resuscitation properly, or whether it's running an apartment, completing a project like going live with a new IT system, you need a diversity of skills and personalities, and you need a bit of an eye for how they fit together. And to me, the best analogy to that is that of a sports team. And so you can't have, I love basketball, so with apologies, I'll, I'll use that as the analogy. You can't have a team of seven-foot centers, and you can't have a team of speedy, fast point guards. You need a mix of people. They all have to be team players, but you need to recognize what the skill of each person is. And the best coaches are renowned for making sure each person knows that they're valuable and what their particular role and contribution is what you're looking for from them and that you have a sense of what they're capable of and will put them in a situation where they're set up for success. The second thing is how to get people to work together towards a common goal. And the way I like to think of this is I think that too often we think that we need to convince people, whether it's in politics or society in general, or whether it's in an emergency department or program, we often think that leadership is in convincing people to be selfless. And I think there's a limited ceiling on what you can do by appealing to people to put aside their self-interest and do something for the team. Rather, what's the magic of leadership is when you can get people to recognize what their enlightened self-interest is. And enlightened self-interest is a philosophical term. Edmund Burke, I think, first coined it. And the idea is to get your head up and look around, think a little bit more long-term, and realize that often it will be in your own long-term best interest to raise up your program, raise up your team, raise up your community, do something for the environment socially, for instance, or for the vulnerable people in your community, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because in the long run, safer, cleaner, happier community or a more successful emergency program will make your life that much more fulfilling, enjoyable. So if you can take a team figure out where the parts fit together, then get them all pulling towards a common goal because of the long-term interest for each of them in reaching that goal, then you've got magic. Okay. Well, that's a very different take, right? Because I think that with, you know, like the different leadership frameworks, some people talk about transformational leadership, seeing the leader as a teacher, you know, like those can sometimes make it feel like you're giving, 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 and you're not ever receiving because teachers often give, 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 and uh, don't necessarily receive something beneficial at back. And I think that sometimes it can feel very lonely at the top then for many people who are leaders. And I think what you're saying is trying to align your own interests with the group's interests and try to find a way to keep that alignment being part of the spark, right? So if it's good for you, it's good for a lot of people often. And as long as you have a diverse team who will check you when you're going the wrong way, you know, there's some case studies of American politics where maybe that diversity is lacking and therefore some people are going the wrong way. But I think it's really interesting concept to think about how you can keep that self-alignment so that you don't feel like it's all for someone else and not ever for you. And I think that's really important to think about for leaders because it's okay to create an order set because you're just annoyed at doing something. And sometimes that's the first act of leadership is seeing something and being willing to put up your hand once in a while, not all the time, but once in a while to change it. Because at the end of the day, it's all these little pieces of leadership, everyday leadership. People call it the lollipop moments where you think you're just doing an order set, but you actually 
increased efficiency across the board for everyone by, you know, even just 1%. That's huge, right? Because it means that 1% could be people getting home a little bit earlier to see their kids before they go to bed. It could make a big difference in people's lives. And I like that concept of thinking about how we can lead a little bit every day. And I think that what you're talking about really kind of jives with that concept as well. Well, that's correct. And just getting your group to realize that each one of them is a leader, whether they recognize it or not. Every time they're on duty, they're leading a team of people. And if they're doing it effectively, then they're good leaders and they can take some of those skills and use them for other issues outside of just being a good clinician. I think that's actually why emergency physicians make extraordinarily good leaders. You will see so many emergency physicians in positions as hospital CEOs. We've had registrars of the College of Physicians. We've had vice deans and deans who are emergency physicians, chief coroners, the CEO of Orange recently in Ontario. And right across the spectrum, you'll see a lot of emergency physicians punching above their weight in leadership positions. And I think, one, we're natural leaders just from our clinical work, and two, our function at the nexus of community and hospital and our ability to really have some knowledge about how different parts of the hospital fit together, but also how we relate to the community, patients coming in, patients getting discharged, gives us a wonderful perspective on broader parts of the healthcare system and nurtures people to be uh, strong healthcare leaders. Great. And so talk to me a little bit about, I think there's a leadership gap that I've noticed as a I'm not that young anymore, but younger (laughs) women, especially in leadership circles, I tend to be a little bit younger. Talk to me a little bit about how we might be able to close that gap in your mind, because I do find that some tables I'm being brought in because there's a lack of diversity. I'm glad to step in when I can. But how are we going to how are we going to tackle that? Because that's a tough nut to crack. And I think we need to be more inventive because I think that asking people to show up is is and inviting people to the table. Definitely. Obviously, those are those are great initiative to have. But I'm racking my brain around it. And I'm not sure what to do about it. And I thought maybe you'd have some reflections. And if you don't, that's okay. We can edit it out. The most obvious leadership role in emergency medicine is the department chief. And it's a crucial role. And actually, many departments have struggled with their searches. And I think part of the reason is, first first of all, the job has become much more complicated over time and much more demanding. And Unfortunately, I think to some extent it's become intimidating for many people. I've seen a kind of interesting phenomena where a lot of people who are well positioned to be chiefs, in my opinion, are reluctant to put up their hand. They don't think they can do the job, or maybe they're afraid it'll be an overwhelming job. And we also sometimes see people putting up their hand a little prematurely in their career when perhaps they have some credentials, but not enough experience under their belts. So the first thing is, in general, encouraging people to become leaders. To me personally, strong medical leadership is not so much about credentials. Maybe I'm biased because I've had a one wonderful career and I have almost no credentials of any kind. I haven't even taken a weekend leadership course. I'm a student of the School of Hard Knocks, as they say. But I've always had good mentors and I've always sought out mentors and listened to advice carefully. But part of being a good medical leader is being a good physician. And it's not a sufficient characteristic, but it is a necessary one. If you can't cut, you're not going to be a respected, successful chief of surgery. And it's not just the respect of your colleagues when you're a good clinician. It's also that good clinicians understand the challenges of good practice and have a natural idea of which problems need to be fixed and where they're going. So more important than the master's degree or the CMA leadership course to me is perfecting your craft. And most of us take five to 10 years after graduation to really become strong clinicians. I think more people would put up their hands for leadership if they truly understood that their status as a really strong clinician is a very important entry card into leadership. When it comes to diversity, what I just said, I think is true for everybody. I think that it's important that people see themselves as leaders. And of course, it's a bit of the uh, chicken or the egg. If you haven't had a person of your gender or color in a leadership position, perhaps you haven't imagined yourself that way. So it's wonderful to have 
mentors or role models, if you can find them, who in some way speak to your personal identity and make you feel comfortable in that way. But actually, I think any leader can promote diversity in in leadership teams just by continuing to nurture that in all the members of your department. Look for those who have a little bit of communication skill, are good clinicians, and start to talk to them like they have an opinion that matters, invite them to important meetings, put them on a committee, make them know that you care about what they say and think. And it's a pretty often short trip from doing that to people starting to imagine themselves in positions that they might not have before that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that what happens, especially at academic centers sometimes, is that there's only so many people that are inclined maybe towards leadership. And so they get spread a little bit more thin, right? So if you're at a community shop, there's an easier pathway, let's say, to leadership because you're usually kind of one and the same. But I think with the increasing complexity in a lot of our systems, what's happening is that, you know, like the program director job looks good for those who are mid-career. And then you maybe aspire to do more education work rather than flipping back to doing more clinical. And, and I've seen it go both ways. People sometimes go in through clinical and eventually become educational leaders. And so to me, it's, it's, it's quite interesting because I actually do see leadership skills as being something that is transferable as opposed to some of the other more contextual stuff. That being said, what you said about the clinician and being a rock star clinician and being okay with that being part of your leadership also speaks to the fact that there is some level of subject content expertise you need in order to be a credible voice at a table. And so whereas running the team may be the same, whether you're talking about your clerkship and how it's going to run versus, you know, like an order set committee where you're going to actually write an order set that pleases everyone, the subject domain expertise of what makes for a great educational program versus what makes for a great order set may actually be quite disparate. And so making sure that you invest in both your personal growth with regards to your clinical work will set you up nicely if you want to aspire for and be involved with clinical leadership. So it's almost like you have to tend to different, I think of it as like having a plot of land where you're trying to tend to different parts of your vegetable garden. It's all gardening, but the carrots need different things than the rutabagas a little bit and definitely different things from the tomatoes because they need different water and different soil. And so although it's all gardening, they are not all going to survive if you just do the same thing to all the plots of your you know, little garden. So I, I think about that as leadership being the gardening, obviously, and then all the areas where you might lead being the different kinds of fruits and vegetables that then become the parts that you have to tend to and understand how the health system works or how educational theory intersects or how EMS, if you're suddenly someone who has been put into position where you're a pre-hospital leader, uh, that would be different. And if you're the chief coroner, that's also different, right? All these pathways that you've talked about, when you land the gig, you have to really quickly upskill. And I think that what Emerge docs are good at is learning on the fly. So that's also probably an asset. Absolutely. We talked about some of the skill sets that you need to to engage in leadership. We didn't talk so much about why you might want to become a leader. And at its most elemental, we talk about people having a vision. Often having a vision just means that you've recognized a problem that's bugging you and you want to solve it. I've been on a number of search committees where the person in front of you pretty clearly reveals themselves to want a title and a salary and a relief from clinical work. And all that could be okay, but you need those enlightened self-interest reasons to be a leader or you're not going to be successful. People are going to sniff that out very quickly. And so what problems do you want to solve? And often people are put off by, if you say to them, what's your vision for this committee, for this department, this program, this curriculum and people get anxious and they say, well, I don't have a vision. I don't know what you mean. I'm not that type of person. But really often having a vision is just about recognizing where there are problems and being willing to solve them. The other important thing I want to say about clinical work, one of the reasons good clinicians make good leaders is because usually they enjoy clinical work. And depending on the leadership role, one of the things that makes good medical leaders, especially if you get to higher levels in the hospital or into public policy and government work, is the ability to be an independent thinker and to speak truth to power. 
speaking truth to power isn't about being rude or challenging or anything like that, but it is about being true to your own beliefs about what's right or wrong in a specific situation. And if you've become dependent on that job, if you've joined a hierarchy in the hospital, in the public service, in the university, where you start to feel like I'm in trouble if I lose my salary, then you start to become much less independent and much more fearful of speaking your mind. But if you know in your heart, I can always go back to seeing patients. I love emergency work in our case. Those types of people often um, make the best, strongest leaders, and they may never have to fall back on doing more clinical work than they want or need to. But if you really don't enjoy clinical work, if you start to become in your mind, dependent on the position and the salary you've got, that's going to compromise your value, in my opinion. Yeah. So I think having a strong clinical background allows you to have that flexibility to flex in, flex out. Maybe even having other leadership opportunities would be another way to do it, right? So if I know some of our more inventive faculty members are, they have startups, they have side gigs that way. I think that being able to see that the leadership route isn't the only way to have a sustainable career is allows you to have that clear conscience. And so you can walk away if someone's making you do something that is not aligned with your values, not aligned with your mission. And you're right, it can be easy to fall down a route if you're stuck somewhere, right? If you don't have another exit strategy to be in a maybe toxic work environment where you're, you know, being made to do certain things. You see that with some of our administrative colleagues in certain companies, they may not know that they could walk away. And so, you know, that's where, you know, white collar crimes probably happen <laughs> is in that pressure, right? Feeling like you can't walk away. I think mm-hmm. amazing privilege we have as emergent physicians is that we're probably always going to be in a demand. Maybe it's just that where you're in demand is a different story. But I think that emergency physicians are very empowered in that way. Mm-hmm. You could walk down the street and you don't have to hang a shingle. You just have to find a chief that's got an empty spot on their roster and <laughs> they'll adopt you. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a, there's a great freedom to that. And I think that, I mean, it actually generalizes to other things, right? So for instance, I think of myself as a very, very well-funded, self-funded emergency medicine education researcher. Because most of my colleagues who are researchers, they they have to go get grants. They have to be dependent on what the granting agencies want. And because I do enough clinical work, and I also have other side gigs and leadership and such, I'm actually able to set my own research agenda. I don't have to chase a grant and align to the grant's interest. I am not beholden to do that. I could walk over and just say, hey, I'm going to pick up an extra couple of shifts and basically be able to fund some of that time for myself to, to have that academic freedom. And so I think what you've brought up is probably something that's relevant to a lot of people. Having that flexibility and acknowledging that your clinical work, since it's in demand, is, is actually a great gift. Well, thank you so much for spending some time. I think the last part of this, I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about is to give us a taste of what it's been like over the course of your career to to see the change in emergency medicine over time because I think some of us don't get to understand it in the way that you might have because you've been around for a little bit longer than some of us. Well, I'm not embarrassed at all to talk about my age or the how long my career's been. I've been at Mount Sinai Emerge just over 38 years now. My first Emerge job was 40 years ago. It was a summer locum at Aurelia Soldiers Memorial Hospital, which is in cottage country. And they used to staff up in the summer to deal with the influx of volume that they would see. And so the first big change is, of course, we really didn't have certified emergency physicians at that time. We didn't have such clear career pathways. And seeing the discipline grow and mature and find its place at the tables has been an amazing journey. And I don't want to get into the whole issue of training streams. I'm on record with CAPE and you can look up some of my letters to the editor and opinion pieces. I think we have the best of all worlds in Canada. I think our two training streams are actually a strength and not a problem. And I think that emergency medicine in the circles I travel in is a very well-respected discipline that does have the ear of government and some other groups. But the other thing, of course, has been the dramatic clinical changes 
we, when I started practice, we didn't have a reliable pregnancy test. We had a point of care urine test that had very poor characteristics, very poor interrater reliability. We never were quite sure who was pregnant. So younger women with uh, pain or bleeding was always a struggle. And you would get a positive result on a urine test and call a gynae resident who would repeat the urine test and say, ah, they're not pregnant. And we also didn't have abdominal ultrasound was relatively new. We did not have transvaginal ultrasound. And so the ability to identify an ectopic pregnancy was very difficult. So we sent many people home that we would diagnose today and ruptured ectopics were a regular emergency. Similarly with uh, myocardial infarction, we would run a set of enzymes once every 24 hours and we would get a total CK if it was elevated elevated and went up and down in a certain pattern, you could ask the lab to run the MB subtype and that would take another 24 hours. And so really you had to decide whether to admit a patient or not based on their cardiogram and their history. And if you admitted them, you might find out two days later that they'd completed an infarct either by ECG evolution or by biochemical confirmation, but it wasn't a diagnostic aid. And again, we, the most careful clinicians made lots of mistakes and sending people home to come back with a completed infarct, arrested and heart failure, very, very common. We didn't have ultrasound for DVT. We did venograms or we did handheld Dopplers listening to flow. And again, to do a venogram, you had to find a vein in a swollen foot. It was a nightmare. We missed many DVTs for pulmonary embolus. We did a VQ nuclear scan. Again, was mostly non-diagnostic. And we would also do a blood gas and measure the AA gradient. And you, you had to get a respiratory consult to uh, get a pulmonary angiogram because it was a dangerous test. And they would look at the AA gradient and think there was some magic at the way they interpreted it compared to the way you interpreted it. There was a lot of baloney. CT scans were fairly new. We couldn't do body scans. We only did brain scans. They were very new back then. And mostly neurologists had to order CT scans. So again, you would end up with many headaches going home and coming back with tumors, with bleeds. So it was a dangerous profession with much more bounce backs. We've become so much more accurate in our diagnostic capabilities. Of course, because of that, we also do more. We had a big fight in the 90s over who would administer thrombolysis and, and who would even make the decision to administer thrombolytics. We often in many hospitals had to call anesthesia if you wanted to intubate a patient. The airway was not part of our domain and on and on and on. So we had to gain skills. Certainly bedside ultrasound story was also a bit of a battle to get the ability to use our skills in a different way from the radiologists. My good friend Ray Wiss was one of the leaders in that battle, put an unbelievable amount of time and energy into that. Eric Litovsky was one of the champions of thrombolysis for emergency physicians and really change practice in Canada in that area. And so I've seen tremendous changes in our position within the healthcare system, what our scope of practice is, what we're able to do for our patients. And practice is certainly much safer as a result, more fun, more satisfying. We get more respect and it's just been a wonderful journey to see all this happen. Yeah. Wow. That's such a great reflection. It's almost impossible for me, I would say right now to imagine what that might have been. I mean, I remember one of our more senior attendings when I started training was Dennis Sutka, who you probably yes, know. Of. And yes. I actually didn't know until his retirement <laughs> party at the MSA where people, you know, talked about, you know, all the changes he has brought. He'd been, you know, an aide to the politicians and, and health policy and shaping the pre-hospital system. You know, like he basically founded everything around 911, except except for the helicopters that we have for Orange. Uh, Frank Bailey, who is one of our surgeons, helped make that one happen after him. I remember meeting him and he would tell me, hi, I'm Dennis, I'm PGY-47. After I introduced <laughs> myself as, you know, PGY1 and every year he advanced the year and he would tell me stories about some of the things like the idea that there was a time before proper, you know, pigtail 
catheters were used, there would only be the big chest tubes and everyone that had a pneumo needed to be admitted or cut downs were more regular because he remembered when they put the first central line and everyone was like, this is so amazing. And it was really interesting to hear those stories. So thank you so much for sharing, because I think that a lot of us actually don't know some of this history. And if we can get some of the oral history down in podcast form, I think it can help us be grateful for what we have, even on the hardest days. It's not as hard as it used to be. That's a frame shift that can happen and, and help. And, and it also goes well that if we've come so far in such a short period of time, I talk about how it's one of the younger specialties in the house of medicine. And yet we are so important now within every hospital. I think that most Canadians and probably a lot of places in the world, except for the places where they don't actually have a proper emergency department, that they don't have that specialty. Once they have it, they can't imagine going back. And I think that we're seeing increasing even global presence of our specialty forming and really kind of becoming a very dominant specialty in, in many health systems, because it's, you know, as they said in the documentary 24-7-365 uh, that was funded by EMRA. So that's the Emergency Medicine Residents Association. And it's available on Vimeo for free if you ever want to check it out. It's a really interesting documentary. But they talked about how emergency medicine was the only specialty that patients got to just lobby for and actually demand. And we stood up and said, hey, we should make this a thing because patients were coming in the middle of the night with their hard checks and their topics and, you know, like their trimester bleeds and their obstetrician wouldn't be there and be some lonely intern that received them. And then they had to make, you know, a waiting room and then they had to make an emergency room. And then now you walk into most hospitals in modern era and there's an entire department that takes up most of the geographic footprint of the first floor. And to be honest, you know, like it's such a different world from the world in which my dad's a physician, you know, and, you know, it's a very different world from when he first started. And he trained at North York uh, back in the day as an intern there. It would have been a very different world then, right? They used to emit gallbladders for pre-ops days before the surgery. And if you had that, well, then, you know, your internal medicine colleagues also had a whole bunch of pretty well patients before, and then the surgeons would take care of them after. And that's a very different flow than right now, where we have alternate level of care patients. We have very sick patients who have multiple chronic diseases that we've cared for so well, but then at some point, something tips the scale and they're very sick. The acuity has gone up so much. And I'm glad that our specialty has kept up with diagnostics and therapeutics so that we can tend to things. But I think the whole system has gotten so much more complex. And it's been really important to kind of like move the entire system. And I think you've done that within your career as well. You've gone outside of the department, ventured into the boardroom and took to, you know, like different tables to kind of make the case. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? My career has been pretty reactive. I, I didn't have a trajectory planned. I started out, Eric Litovsky and I, Eric used to be at Sinai. We were not happy with the leadership we'd had for a few years in a row. And so we talked it over and said, why don't we just both offer to be co-chiefs rather than bringing in another lousy chief for us to follow. And so we became co-chiefs and I was very happy with the arrangement and had young children and wasn't looking for, uh, for much of a change. And Eric got a little itchy, wanted to run his own shop and left to go to Credit Valley. And so I had to step up and become the solo chief at Sinai. At that time, there was a big shortage of eMERGE docs and we were facing some issues provincially on the relative pay scale. They set up a big commission on relative value pay, the RVS, they called it. And I thought eMERGE docs were going to do poorly. And I spoke to some people I knew on the OMA section of emergency medicine. And they said, well, if you have good ideas, why don't you come join us? And it seemed like a good way to raise my profile that might help me recruit for our department if people kind of knew who I was. So I put up my hand and I ran for the OMA section of emergency medicine. We had a wonderful executive at that time. It was a great, I spent 10 years in that role and learned a lot about healthcare politics and the Ontario system. And we had some we had some impact, not just on payment systems, but on other things, gunshot wound reporting and shift work and recognition of the impact of shift work. And so I got a taste of politics. And then, and certainly we worked a lot on the overcrowding issue. And then there was a group of fee-for-service docs who had a particular agenda related to compensation who came along and kind of took over the section of 
of emergency medicine and me and my colleagues were kind of kicked out. And then there was a particular case. We had a lot of overcrowding problems in Ontario. A lot of strategies have been tried that didn't work, but people weren't listening to us. And there was a particularly well-publicized death in an important political community at the time in Kitchener-Waterloo. A university student, she was an American who was going to school in Waterloo, presented to a local emergency department during flu season with fever and headache and looked to the triage nurse like anybody else with the flu or a flu-like illness. And there was basically an eight-hour wait to be seen at 11 o'clock at night. So the triage nurse kind of suggested maybe she just wanted to go home and rest and come back in the morning. And she eventually died of meningococcemia. And this got a lot of press play. So the Liberal government at the time appointed, Dalton McGinty appointed Bob Bell, who was the CEO of UHN at the time, to a task force to look at overcrowding. And from that report came our pay for results program and the appointment of Lynn Leeds for emergency medicine. And in 2009, I had an opportunity to replace Mike Shule as the chair of that group because he was going on sabbatical and I just had a wonderful year. And I think when Mike came back, he decided that he was missing research and that I looked a little too happy in my role politically. So Mike said, just carry on. And so I've been chairing the provincial expert panel or Lynn Lead table ever since. We now call it the Emergency Services Advisory Committee. And that's how I got into public policy. I'm still involved in that today. Because of the pay for results program, emergency physicians learned a little bit about how to practice to metrics and follow incentives. And then healthcare funding reform came in in 2011. And some people in my hospital asked me if I would become a program director and show other medical groups how to practice to incentives and react to financial levers. And I was a little reluctant at first. I thought I was really more immersed in emergency medicine in the broader world rather than the broader hospital, but the hospital felt they needed me and I loved the hospital, so I couldn't say no. So I took on a hospital leadership role beyond the emergency department. Over time, that's led to my role as now chief strategy officer for the hospital. I have a role in fundraising with the foundation. So I'm no longer the chief of our department after 30 years as chief, but I continue to practice in the eMERGE. I continue to chair the Emergency Services Advisory Committee through the pandemic. It's been an interesting time, and I have this executive role at the hospital. So I've just had a ball, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had. And I'm 60 five for another couple of weeks. I have no plan to slow down. I love what I do. And if this pandemic was going on and I was home watching Netflix, I'd be insane. I'm so grateful that I have a role where I can contribute to the response. So that's my story. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Residence Corner. As always, I'm Ben, one of the PGY2s in the Emerge program here at Mac. For this episode of Residence Corner, I'm going to be speaking with Laura Olesnik, one of our PGY3s in the FRCP Emerge program here at Mac, about her exciting research project how she navigated and then won a CAPE grant for her research, and how she's been surviving PGY3. Laura, how are things going? Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on uh, today. PGY3, can't believe two blocks already come and gone. I started this year on ICU, and it's a critical care year, so I really started, you know, ICU, two blocks, then I have PICU and CCU, so really starting uh, strong with the critical care, which is great because it's so relevant for our merge practice here in Hamilton. And PGY3 is also known for kind of electives, so we get to discover interest for enhanced competency year in or five, which I'm actually interested to do pain medicine. So got a couple interesting electives coming up this uh, year as well. Sounds like it'll be relevant for this uh, research project we'll be talking about. I also need to congratulate you as you're our first chief that's a PGY3, I believe. With this new exam cohort, we've got three chiefs. 
and uh, Laura is one of our PGY3 chiefs. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. It's big shoes to fill for sure. And being first kind of PGY3 chief, it's kind of scary, but exciting as well. As you know, this is our, our first year where the both the R5s and the R4s are writing their exams. So hopefully I can help pick up some slack, especially when they're in the midst of writing their exam and help uh, help take on some of those chief roles throughout the year and especially during that exam time when they're super, super busy. Well, very excited to have you as uh, one of our chiefs, Laura. Now, Laura, can you tell me about your latest research project that we're so excited about talking about here today? Super enthusiastic about this project. So the project name is Pharmacological Management of Acute Pain in the Pediatric Emergency Department. And it's a systematic review and network meta-analysis of randomized trials. And we'll get a little bit into what a network meta-analysis is. The supervisor for this project is our very own McMaster EM staff and amazing researcher, Dr. Mohamed El-Torki. So he works at Mumsy. And the way I like to describe this project is with a clinical scenario at first. So let's say you're on one of your PEM eMERGE shifts and a three-year-old comes in with your typical MSK injury, those rambunctious you know, toddlers. Your lovely child uh, life services are already well-equipped with non-pharmacological distraction methods. But you notice that on exam, the patient is still crying and grimacing. And now most of us can attribute this exam to fear or anxiety, or some even say that the child's age uh, is playing a factor. But how about just the underlying contribution of pain, which we seem to kind of forget? So the question in our research is, in all children age 17 years or younger who present to the ambulatory care or emerge setting with any acute painful condition, which pharmacological intervention provides A, the most effective pain relief, and B, the lowest prevalence of adverse effects. In terms of the method, it is a network meta-analysis. And now this term has become a little bit more popular in literature reviews, especially in the past couple of years, because it's a way to directly and indirectly compare intervention using complex statistical uh, analysis. So to explain this, let's say you have one RCT that compares Tylenol to Advil. Then you have a second RCT that compares Tylenol to placebo. So now let's say there's no RCTs out there comparing Advil to placebo. We can use stats to actually make a network and indirectly compare those two without having that RCT. It allows us to group all the results and kind of compare them directly and indirectly based on what uh, research is already out there. Our goal is to cast a very wide net for the literature search. As I mentioned, all kids, zero, including neonates, 217. And we're using all pharmacological, including all routes. So as you can see, like part of this project is going to be the literature search and to really see what studies have been done out there and what gaps still exist. Once we have all our studies, we do the data extraction. And I just want to mention this will be a bit of a roadblock. As you know, kids, some kids younger can't verbalize pain scores from one to 10, right? There's over 30 different pain skills as a comparative tool. So once we start comparing those pain scales, we're going to have to think of a way of how to compare different pain scales. Another thing we're going to do is we're going to assess the risk of bias using a Cochrane uh, instrument, and we will use the grade approach, which maybe you can add a link down below uh, for people to see what the grade approach is, because it's being used quite a bit in, in literature searches as well. And then the last step of the project will be all the fun stuff. Once we have all our results, we'll do knowledge translation. So one of our other co-investigators, Dr. Samina Ali in Calgary, she's part of SKIP, which is a solution for kids in pain. And she's going to extend this for a broader audience for knowledge translation. And of course, publication in a journal and uh, presenting at the CAPE conference. Wow, Laura, this is a really exciting project. And I think it answers so many important questions. Uh, we give so many different analgesics in the emergency department, and I've just been on my pediatric eMERGE rotations all summer, and we're seeing all the time kids coming in with abdominal pain or coming in with MSK injuries. And sometimes you do some ibuprofen, sometimes some acetaminophen, sometimes maybe even some morphine if it's really bad pain. But it'd be great to know, you know which ones are best, and it sounds like this is an excellent project to determine what are the best ways we can treat our little kiddos with pain, even up to our teenagers with pain. And I think you really highlight some of the difficulties with this population. It's so heterogeneous uh, from 17-year-olds who will be able to give you a scale of 1 to 10 or use the visual analog scale for pain to a 2-year-old who says mama, dada, and ow. So it sounds like a very ambitious and exciting project. I look forward to seeing the results. 
Now, can you tell me a little bit more about what inspired this study? What was the catalyst for you wanting to pursue this project? It's a great question. And uh, for this, I can't take full credit. Dr. El Torqui is actually the one that works full-time at in the peds and merge department. And he really was the one that came up with the initial question. And at that time I was doing research and got in touch with him and we sort of came up with question and, and a proposed solution to answer that question together. But it really stems from that acute pain in children is really unrecognized and undertreated, as you mentioned. And analgesics are, like you said, often underdosed or withheld and sometimes even delayed. Untreated and poorly uh, treated pediatric pain can lead to multiple downstream effects like child distress, disrupted ED flows, slower healing times, uh, leading to chronic pain, as we know can be a devastating problem in Canadian children and youth. And the reluctance to treat these pain, I think, stems from our end, where it's fear of adverse effects, lack of knowledge regarding the relative benefits and harm. So hopefully this will give us a bit more guidance in terms of what to do. Like I said, the inspiration really came from me wanting to do my subspecialty uh, enhanced competencies in pain and being better at treating pain both in the acute settings in the eMERGE um, and recognizing the long-term effects, including chronic pain. It's a very exciting project. It's so exciting, so important, and so well thought out that you actually won a research grant from CAPE, our National Emergency Medicine Association. Can you tell us about this grant application process, and what this award means going forward with this project. So I've been involved in previous grant proposals, but this was the first one that I was really involved from beginning with protocol write-up, planning the budget, timeline, and submission. So I can't, again, highlight the importance of team assembly for a grant proposal. So you really need to gather experts in the field that can help you, because if it wasn't for that, unfortunately, I don't think I would get this grant. And once we got our feedback back, you know, where we had our reviewers go through the grant and give feedback, one of the comments was, you know, Laura is a novice researcher, but because she has the support of so-and-so, we believe this project will get done in time. And you know what, we all have to start somewhere. So I, I understand that comment, but it's really the team behind you and me leading the team where I was able to get this grant. So how I started is, of, of course, after you have your proposed project, you need to research the grants available. McMaster has, has quite a bit of grants. Um, you can go broadly with emergency associations, or you can even go internationally. I did even apply for one international grant, um, which is obviously the competition is a little bit um, is heavier in those international grants, but might as well put it out there. I can't stress enough the amount uh, of planning you need to do. So you need to write out each plan for each grant because it has specific requirements and make certain checklists. And I pretty much went on based on deadlines. So whichever deadline came up first, I put that as a priority. I use a free software called Asana. I mean, it's not a plug for anything. You can do a free trial, but I found it very, very good to as a task manager. And you can find out your own way of how to kind of plan that. And then another thing I just did is don't try and reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of other network meta-analysis that are redone in pain. So I used kind of their baseline frameworks and decided to do something similar because why start from scratch when you can work? And especially one of our uh, co-leads has done multiple network meta-analysis. So I was very fortunate to just be able to kind of mimic something that they've already done and has been successful with results that have changed guidelines. The other thing is getting a statistician involved early. Just like you want the most experienced operator intubating a high-risk COVID patient, you want someone super experienced to write up your methods in your grant because that's your baseline foundation and you don't want to change those methods because then there's going to be discrepancies further on. So get a statistician involved early. And then the last thing was I had alter of plans. So if this grant didn't come through, I applied for a couple other ones. So have a backup plan. Um, and what it means for this project, we really thank CAPE, which has allowed us to propel this project forward. It has helped us with assembling human resources, like I say, said, statisticians and undergraduate research uh, associates, as well as using fancy recognition software, which is going to be super helpful. And I think it's also, we budgeted the grant to help us with publication and related costs to get that information out to a broader audience, which is our ultimate goal. Right. So once you get a study, it's so much just to publish, but to actually reach people to read it and read the results so that they can change practice. It sounds like a very difficult 
trying but very rewarding process. And it's clear with your organization skills with these multiple grant timelines that you're also going to be a very organized chief as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, Yeah, I think this is good lessons for anyone else who's maybe interested in research and applying for these grants about considering the timelines and taking a look at what's available and not putting all of your eggs in one basket, but really seeing, you know, locally, nationally, internationally, where you may be able to get funding that's going to support these extracurricular activities because really this is an extracurricular as a a resident and how this will also make this study as methodologically sound as it can be getting those statisticians involved getting the right software getting the librarians and having that support as you mentioned it's a team game now laura do you have any last tips or tricks for medical students residents like myself or even staff physicians interested in getting involved with research? Yeah, of course. So I come across a lot of residents and even medical students saying they don't like research or they do it just to fulfill an area on their resume and their or their Royal College requirement. And honestly, when I was involved in projects that I really was not passionate about, I felt that exact same way. You meet a roadblock and you're not passionate about finding that answer. So it's kind of difficult to to complete a task when you're not passionate about it. So number one, be able to say no when certain projects come up and you feel like you're not passionate about them and try and find an area within medicine that really sparks an interest. And I even say say this to everyone who applies to CARMS is find your kind of niche and look at what you've really done for your extracurriculars and see if there's a common theme to see if, you know, wait, I've done maybe a lot of women's health electives. I've did one project in this. Maybe this is what I'm interested based on kind of my repertoire of my past experience and uh, to find something that really you're interested at and can put time into. And then on the other hand is also don't spread yourself too thin. Like I said, a lot of people say yes to so many projects and are giving really 20% of what they can give. And that makes it difficult for the person leading the project and delays things. So really try and, like I said, find an interest and, and put more time into one or two projects versus, you know, saying yes to multiple things. Find mentors that will support you. So unless you're a master's or have a PhD within research, like I said, assemble a team because there's no way I would have had the expertise to do this all myself. And then preparation is key, as you mentioned. So as you're putting a central line in, you're thinking of your positioning, you're reviewing your steps, you're reviewing anticipated outcomes based on your situation. So I anticipated some of the roadblocks and I did hit some roadblocks already and I kind of reassembled, got the team back together, and then we, we still decided to move forward on certain aspects. So don't, uh, when you do reach a roadblock, don't um, stop just because of that. Yeah, that's amazing. I think really good points you've highlighted there. Don't say yes to every project. The projects you do say yes to, invest time in. And timelines are difficult to hold, and there are lots of roadblocks in both clinical medicine as well as in research. So anticipate and plan for those and be flexible. Now, Laura, I really appreciated talking with you. I'm sure uh, everyone listening will appreciate your insights. Big congratulations on this project. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the results down the line. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I'm very excited to see the results as well. We have a little bit of a hypothesis um, going on, but it'll be interesting to see if our hypothesis holds true. So stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back emerge 